So as we come this morning to our passage in Mark 8, in terms of discipleship, in terms of followership, in terms of our spiritual transformation, we arrive at a major turning point in Mark's gospel that becomes very personal for us with this question, who do you say that I am? And the right answer, of course, I mean, we know this now with 2,000 years of reflection on it, right? We, we have a head start here. We know that the right answer requires the decision for a lifelong journey, both inward and outward, right? Inwardly towards the spiritual transformation of our heart and soul, mind, body, will, emotions, and outwardly towards the other. And this is true, of course, because of the things that Jesus has said about what it means to follow him, like just the simple, come follow me. Now, just think for a moment what's implicit in that. Something like we were just singing, submission, and apprenticeship to a master. Or when Jesus says famous words like, seek first the kingdom of God. I mean, what is that if not a complete reordering of our priorities. Or when he taught to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor, and your enemy too. I mean, what is that if not a complete reordering of our loves? And then he says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And what is that if not an invitation to the deepest inward journey we might ever want to go into our subconscious insecurities and pre-conscious hypocrisies. No one ever gets out of bed in this morning and, and on a given morning and says, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just be a hypocrite today. Right? These things come from sub and pre-conscious motivations that if we begin to take serious this business of following Jesus, then then we automatically begin to take serious that there's an aspect of me that says, Lord, Lord, and there's another part of me that says, no way, no way, right? Or Lord, Lord, and well, actually me, me, or something, right? Am I the only one that experiences this sort of inner conflict from time to time? And then he says very poignantly, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And I think this is an invitation to notice the things in us that disable us from following him. As you note in your passage that Jesus doesn't say, if you don't take up your cross, I won't allow you to follow me. I think sometimes that's the way we read this, as if it's a moralism. Like, unless you too are willing to take up your cross the way I did, well, then you're not good enough for me and I won't let you follow me. That's not what's said here. What is said here is a simple statement of fact. If you don't take up your cross, you can't follow me. He's not saying I won't let you. He's saying you can't. I mean, as long as you're living with that sort of fundamental tension about who you're following, it actually doesn't work to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Now, as I said, you know, Mark knew the answer to this question when he was writing his gospel, and you don't have it in front of you, but, uh, and I don't expect to remember, but Mark 1.1, the very first uh, verse in this book says that this is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So when you have the word Christ there, you have the revelation that he's the Messiah. And when you have that phrase, the son of God, that would have been heard in Mark's days as a claim to deity. So when Mark starts writing, he says, this is who I'm writing about. I'm writing the one 
about, I'm writing about the one whom we discovered to be Messiah and who we discovered surprisingly to be, and they wouldn't have had this language, but what we would say of today is the second person of the Trinity, that, that Jesus was claiming deity for himself. And so Mark knew the end of the story. Uh, he knew the end of it for the 12, what they were experiencing in our passage today. He knew the end of the story for his readers. And he, in that sense, knew the story for us. But what I want you to feel this morning as we get into this passage, and not just for the sake of like New Testament historicity, but I want you to feel it for yourself. And I want you to feel it for the religious people with whom you disagree. And I want you to see and feel that everyone experiences progressive revelation. Everyone. I've been doing this for decades and I'm quite sure I will learn some things in the next couple decades if the Lord lets me live that long. Shocked if I didn't learn anything new. I feel like I learn something new every week. Some new discovery about myself, about others, about God, about God's story. I feel like I'm constantly growing. Well, what does that mean? It means I'm constantly wrong about something. <laughs> Now, as I always say, I'm not advocating wrongness. I, I, you know, this, this is a church full of really smart people who are pursuing as much theological precision as we can possibly get, me included. But whenever I learn something or, or there's a notion in me that gets confronted where I'm just not aware that I'm wrong about something, I'm then living into this kind of story that Mark's telling. So you could try this on for size, but for me, I, I feel like I live in this um, sort of dy dynamism. Todd, be clear as you possibly can. And then be kind. Because everyone is doing their best while seeing through a glass darkly. I don't know that I've ever met a Christian who said, yeah, I'm just kind of trying to get it wrong. And so I do my level best to be as right as I possibly can. Be kind. Eugene Peterson commenting on this passage and you know, kind of the angsty growth that the disciples are going through, and it says this, that Jesus sometimes leads us through strange and unfamiliar territory in circumstances that become clear only in the hesitations and questionings, only in the pauses and reflections where, where we engage in prayerful conversation with one another and with God. And so if you look at your passage, <clears throat> excuse me, and you, you see the answers um, that the 12 give to Jesus about who people are, are saying, speculating, I should say, who Jesus is, and we don't know for sure how much you know, they speculated these sorts of things, but at least some people, and maybe some of them, speculated that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others speculated that he kind of had characteristics or qualities of Elijah, meaning Jews of Jesus' day would have expected Elijah to come. Like if the kingdom was going to come, they would have expected that to be launched by a figure like Elijah, and they would have associated with that great power. And so the people have seen Jesus do these great deeds of power, so they're speculating maybe Elijah. Some said maybe one of the prophets. Maybe they were aware of the kind of weepingness that Jesus had that would have matched a little bit something like Jeremiah but the problem with Jeremiah is he, he's kind of the best but failed prophet, right? 
Like he prophesied and prophesied and he told God's point of view and he begged people to align their lives with him and you get to the end of Jeremiah and he doesn't appear to be a success. And maybe that's the way this story's going. So their speculation was all kind of religious but not accurate speculation. And of course, the right answer that emerges from the text in Jesus's prediction, it doesn't fit anything people would know that the Son of Man would suffer many things or be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed and then three days rise again. That, that narrative would have just been like, Psh. no one had ever heard of such a thing associated with the word or concept Messiah. So this is why Peter takes him aside. And this is a lovely picture, if we can get it right, reading between the lines of the Greek text. There's, there's kind of a lovely picture here, perhaps. I mean, just to be fair, we're reading between the lines a little bit. But it would have been common to have had a Messiah, sorry, a rabbi, who would have had followers behind him. Catch that? So that one of the ancient ideas about being an apprentice to a rabbi or a mathetes to a rabboni one of, the, one of the really rich imageries in the, the time that Jesus lived was that you were covered in your rabbi's dust. Well, why were you covered in your rabbi's dust? Because you were walking behind him. Now, and in Jesus' case, especially probably closely behind him. And so I don't want you to picture some like negative hierarchy here, just like a, a tradition of they walked closely beside, or sorry, um, behind their Rabboni. That's what a mathetes, the disciple, did. And so they would get covered in his dust. Well, in this case, what likely happens is maybe Peter, who's at the front of the pack, can you see him just sort of scurrying up front? And the Greek verb here is something like he takes Jesus by the arm and like kind of physically moves him to a different place. That's like a literal translation of the verb. And so maybe he like, so the NIV gets it, he takes him aside. That's fair enough. He, he, took, he takes Jesus aside and he begins to confront him. So he's no longer behind him in a learning posture. He's now in a controlling posture. And we could go on a weekend retreat and just sit with that. We could just like sit with that image for a weekend where he's scurried up front, no longer in a learning posture, now in a posture of trying to control the narrative. Again, I'm sure he thinks he's doing what's right. I don't doubt it in the slightest. So be kind. Peter's trying to get it right, but he just happens to be wrong. And you know, again, we have to read between the lines to know exactly what Peter's motivations are, but the scholarly consensus would run around along two tracks. One is what you have something here is like a, a, a young parent, you know, comes home and, and says to a little girl or a little boy, um, we just heard that grandpa's going to die. And can you see then grandpa walking in the room and a little five-year-old or four-year-old granddaughter, grandson, you know, running up to grandpa and, you know, I'll grab him around his legs going, no, grandpa, never, not you. I know other grandpas die, but never, not you. You're not going to die. Something like that's going on, like it's emotional, or it could be that Peter has heard this notion of suffer, rejection, death, and is saying, no, that, that can't be right. Because that sounds like it means that Jesus is going to lose. And we all know that by definition, Messiah means strength and victory. 
So what's going on here is that the Rabboni, Jesus, who's out in front, he's got a narrative going in his head. And we read about it every Advent, and we will read about it again this Advent, where Jesus is becoming to associate his vocation with the suffering servant of Isaiah. So he knows what, where this path is going. He knows the scriptures. Peter is seeing a whole different narrative in his mind. And so part of it's like personal, like, no, Jesus, never you. And part of it is, you might say, kind of political. Religious, well, sort of the intersection of religious and religion and politics. Like, no, this isn't what happens to the Jewish Messiah. And this is where Jesus, or sorry, this is where Peter becomes the Satan, the tempter. Because, right, Jesus had faced this down in his temptations, right, after the desert. He'd faced precisely this temptation down. Who did he face it down from? The devil himself. And so when he hears these words from Peter, these kind of accusatory, you know, Satan the accuser, or these tempting words, Satan the tempter, when, when, when he sees this, Jesus personalizes it to say, like, I know where this comes from. This comes from the evil one. And so now, you know, having been pulled aside, the, the, the kind of the mental images, Jesus turns and he, and he sees the 11 and he sees that they're now confused and they're wavering. And so he rebukes Peter in the hearing of all of them, basically to say that we're now right at the core of what it means to follow me. Because Jesus knows this, this story is going down that suffering servant path. And so he says, and this is a very important little logical connective, and we'll see it again, for you see that word in your passage? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And that is to say, Jesus is now instructing the others by saying, okay, here's what's going wrong with Peter. Peter has his mind on the things of men. I have my mind on the things of God. I'm putting it in the terms of Isaiah. Of, of Isaiah. And so the notion is that Peter's living in a story. He has a point of view, a worldview, a world or a lens and I think what this moment in this story invites us to notice is the malforming power of unmanaged expectations. Right? Just think with me here for a second. What else is going on if not that? Jesus has one set of expectations. Peter has another. And those malformed expectations are having this incredible power over Peter, so powerful that Jesus uses words like Satan. That like the enemy, the, like the arch enemy, the, the exact opposite, the, you know, 180 degrees out, whatever sort of analogy you want to substitute there, that's what Jesus is feeling and it's what he's naming and again, we could go on a weekend retreat to just sit and think. How might we name our unmanaged expectations and the power they have over our narrative? Whether it's economic or gender or relationship or church or religion or God or Christ. Those words never sit nakedly in our minds. They're attached to places in our heart they're attached to our will, our soul, our emotions, our thinking, our feelings. And it's those attachments that when they get malformed that cause this kind of thing that's going on with Peter. 
And so what this suggests to us is that true conversion, true human change can be a grueling experience. I don't think Peter just sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, I guess I got that wrong and walked back to the pack. I mean, right, that had to be a grueling moment or some word like that, some adjective like that. Like that was intense. So I don't mean to say that true conversion is always that intense, right? I mean, I think our experience would tell us that much of our conversion is subtle changes in the habits of our heart, which, you know, we begin to cultivate new virtue and new character. But again, just speaking for myself, you tried on for size. Sometimes though, we are dramatically uncomfortably wrong. And those are points of genuine conversion. You know, we didn't read it uh, this morning, but the, the paragraph just before the paragraph we, we read is the story of Jesus healing the blind person who, when Jesus asks him, can you see? Do you remember what the blind man says? Well, sort of. I see men as if they're walking around like trees. Remember that story? And again, you know, we, uh, we're always reading between the lines a little bit, but some scholars think that Mark told this story specifically in the order in which, you know, you might outline Mark 8, that we're kind of meant to see here that sometimes we too, we see, but we see fuzzy. So Peter's seeing that there's something vastly important about Jesus, but he's seeing it a little bit fuzzy. And that means, I think, that there is vulnerability implied in following Jesus. And this, I think, is hugely counterintuitive because I'll bet most of us in this room would put up our hands to say yes to this statement, that we thought that when we came to follow Jesus, we would precisely be leaving vulnerability behind. And so it's really counterintuitive to think that, no, actually the process of conversion, the process of our own spiritual change actually constantly invites vulnerability the vulnerability of I, I may be seeing through a glass here darkly. And there may be something about an attitude, a, a presupposition I have or something that, that needs to change. And you know, when I say it this way, you say, well, yeah, of course, right? Because growth means change, right? If something's growing, that means it's changing, right? And change means risk. And risk means fear and anxiety. And so you have this kind of vulnerability that comes when Jesus says things like, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow them. Well, why, Lord? And here's another one of those logical connectives. Four, look at your passage. Well, here's why. Because if anybody tries to save his life by, in a sense, running from the vulnerability implied of being a mathetes to a ruboni, if anybody gets, you know, that, that gets a bit too much for them and they begin to run from it, well, actually, in trying to save their life, and avoid vulnerability, they'll, they'll actually be losing it. Now, now a contrast, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will in fact save it. They will actually find that place in the end that, that is utterly secure. Now another logical connective, four, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world? That is to say a sort of pseudo invulnerability and yet forfeit the growth of one's soul that can only be found down the path precisely of being vulnerable to our internal um, brokennesses, our, our, our mental thoughts that aren't accurate. 
what would it, how, what, like, what would that do? And then you have these words that I think in the 21st century, we might read them kind of as harsh, but again, follow Jesus' logic. For, but, for, and then the second for, for whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Now think about those words for a moment, adulterous. That is to say, non-fidelity to God in his unfolding story in me. Sinful, missing the mark, hamartia, to miss the mark. So adulterous in that it's a choice to adhere to something false. It's sinful in that it's malaligned to what God's doing. And so Jesus says, anybody who's doing that out of shame for this suffering servant, Isaiah 53 story, anybody who is um, not willing to to cohere with that, cohere their life to that, then of that person, the son of man will also be ashamed when he comes again. Now you go, okay, okay, all right, Hunter, you're right. That's kind of harsh. Like, what does that mean? And I think it means something like this at a minimum. This stuff really matters. I mean, everybody would agree that this is the, the turning point in Mark's gospel, that this is a turning point in the, the, any, anything Jesus ever said to anybody. This is a major turning point. It's a major pivot. It's a major point of decision. It's, a, it's, it's what puts the question mark up there. Like, will you really? And so I think we have to find, now I'm, this is a little, uh, a little, just very short, I guess, bunny trail. But I guess what this says to me is that we have to find a way of standing in 2018 and beyond with this is true, this really matters, but with appropriate kindness and tolerance for those who don't see it yet. But we do nobody any favors by backing off of the truth of this. That might feel kind, it might feel tolerant in a different way, but actually it's just sort of a different way of being um, sinful, of missing the mark, of being adulterous, of like marrying something else so that we get away from these uncomfortable words. Far better, I would say, to stand in the comfort of the uncomfortable words do everything we can to align our life to those uncomfortable words, but then somehow find a way of standing in our families and friends and workplaces and neighborhoods with an appropriate kind of kindness and tolerance, not in the sense of, you know, radical pluralism as if there's nothing true. I don't mean that. Think of it this way. Tolerance is an act of love. It's an act of space-making. It's an act of generosity. It's an act of inclusion. It doesn't have to mean and shouldn't ever mean compromise. In a sense, Jesus tolerated Peter. He didn't say, get the hell out of here and with a swipe of his forearm, knock him up to Mars or something. Like, well, if you're that stupid, you know, they H with you, right? No, he... And in that sense, tolerates it. You're still in the posse. Now, get back to where you would, you know, get behind me. Don't try to be out here trying to control the narrative. Get behind me. Get back into the place where a mathetes, a disciple, a learner should be. But you're not kicked out. You're just wrong. So I think when we, again, when we think of living into this ourselves, the, the self-denial that Jesus is calling for here is not just the small irritations of social rejection, what he's really getting at here is a renunciation of self that's an unreserved commitment. 
It's kind of like a shift in the gravitational center of our life where he's actually calling. He's, he's actually specifically calling for a self-denial that would include death if needed. He, he, that is what he's calling for. I mean, you can make this into all sorts of things like little psychological issues we have or something. But, but what he's actually calling here includes everything we might think of, but it also includes death if needed. And of course, when we read this kind of stuff, we quickly realize that it's really easy to give lip service to this kind of stuff. But it's really difficult in practice. You probably know the famous thinker G.K. Chesterton, and his, some of you will know his famous phrase, famous phrase, but it's good to hear it in this setting. You know, Chesterton famously said, the Christian ideal has not been found tried and wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Right, that sort of self-denial even unto death if necessary. But this is really key knowledge for us, I think, in our own formation. Because what we're invited to see here is that Jesus' commitment to his father and Jesus' own self-denial with those tapes of Isaiah 53 running in his head and other parts of Isaiah, running in his head, knowing that where this is going to go. So his commitment to his father and to, and to his own self-denial meant that he submitted to the suffering and contempt of the cross, but then came out the other side perfectly safe. And I think what this story is meant to invite us to see is that the process of self-renunciation is actually good, painful, confusing, but it's good and it's God-ordained and that we are perfectly safe within us. Right? So think of Holy Week. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then Saturday. Was he safe on Saturday? Was the cosmos up for grabs? Or was there some assurance that he was going to come out the other side and be perfectly safe? This is meant to be a pattern for us to follow, that we see that as we engage in self-renunciation that we're it's a perfectly good process and that we're I'm sorry it's a perfectly good thing and in the process we are perfectly safe in it and that we will come out the other side being who we were meant to be in the same way the suffering servant came out the other side being who he was meant to be so bringing this to a close to peter the drama playing out before him seemed to make jesus into a loser and I think the same seems to many of us to be true today of religion and especially of the Christian church. I mean, there are dry bones all around us and they're staggeringly real. But what we're meant to see as Christians and what we're meant to prophesy is that there's a breath blowing in the world and that this breath is one day going to connect muscle and ligament and renew skin and flesh and re reorient it, all of this to its created purpose. So I thought this week for myself, I always try to think first of myself before I think of teaching anybody else. I tried to just jot down, well, what's my answer to this question? And again, you can kind of try it on for size. I answered the question saying, Jesus is my teacher, my master, my Lord. And I'm his apprentice learning to live my life on earth in the kingdom of God as he, the Messiah, taught us to do. 
And I find that as I do this, I have more and more confidence in Jesus, in his way, his truth, his life. And then I find that this confidence gives me a grounded peace and that this posture of grounded peace allows my life to be experienced as for the good of others. And as all of this becomes ever more true, then I think I have faithfully answered Jesus's question, who do you say that I am?